Tyler Smith here with another More Than One Lesson mini-sode. This one is going to be about the best picture of 1964, George uh, Cukor's... Is that, am I saying that right? Cukor? So. Cukor? Cukor, I think is right. I am Cukor. Yeah. That sounds pretty good. Yeah. <laughs> obviously, even if it's pronounced the other way, I would say it that way if I'm George Cukor. Um, the film... Is my fair lady? My fair lady. That's right. And here to talk about it, and we've we've already heard him, and I'd maybe like to not hear from him quite so much. Well, that's is uh, my co-host Josh Long. Josh, how you doing? Hey, good. All right, very exciting. So yeah, that so. sounded that did not sound sincere. I apologize. Uh, okay, oh, it was so. sincere. What was that? It was sincere. You know what? I don't even know anymore. Yeah, I think we're we're fine. So uh, I've stopped being able to detect in my own voice sarcasm. That's. So that's dangerous. Okay. So my fair lady won the following Oscars picture, director, actor, cinematography, art direction, costumes, sound, and music. It was nominated for supporting actor, supporting actress, adapted screenplay and editing. So this, I'm not going to say it was an Oscar powerhouse, but this was a film that the Academy really got behind. Mm -hmm. Um, so it is, uh, you know, based on the stage musical that was inspired by, uh, uh, Pygmalion by mm -hmm. uh, George something. Yeah, George Bernard Shaw. George Bernard Shaw. Thank you. Um, so, uh, which I and I've never read that. I haven't either. But I'm trying to remember. It, there was a film of Pygmalion. Is it? It's who? I can't remember who made it now. I don't actually know. I think I might have seen it, but now I can't remember. I have to look it up. I'm definitely curious uh, if I ever had time to read anymore, which I don't. Um, I'd be curious to read Pyg Pygmalion or watch a straightforward adaptation of it because yeah. I thought that it was going to be because after watching the film, I looked up the original story and I thought like, okay, this is it's called Pygmalion. Maybe that's a character's name. I don't know what's going on. Uh, and maybe that they maybe they just uh, broaden the story, change characters, names, stuff like that. And had a, it was like a loose adaptation. It was more inspired by, no, mm -hmm. I mean, it's Henry Higgins, Eliza Doolittle. Like, it's very much that. Uh, it's the same story, but yeah. put to music. Um, it sounds like you uh, saw that what these what this ad adaptation was. Yes, it's uh, it was Anthony Asquith made it in 1938. Oh, wow. Okay. So, and there hasn't been anything since then. What's that? No, I don't, not that I'm aware of. Um, it's got Leslie Howard in it. I like him. Um, I think I have seen it. If I have, it's been years, but I do like Anthony Asquith. He, he, he's, uh, he also did a version of, uh, importance of being earnest that I liked. Okay. I don't know um, if I've seen anything that he's done. Um, and it's entirely possible that once my fair lady came out, people just thought, all right, we got it. We yeah. don't need to bother with any straightforward adaptations of Pygmalion. Mm -hmm. We got what we needed. And, you know, it's a, it's a crowd pleaser. Mm. A 170-minute crowd pleaser. You is know, it that long? It is that long. Jesus. Now, I will say, having watched it yesterday, mm -hmm. 
it doesn't feel that long. It definitely moves. Mm-hmm. Occasion, there are definitely things that should have been removed. Hmm. Uh, entire songs that should have been removed. Hmm. Um, but by and large, I actually liked it quite a bit. There are things that I wanted to bounce off of you, reactions hmm. that I had that I wanted to know if they resonate with you or if it was just me. Mm-hmm. Um, but first I'll ask, uh, when was the last time you saw it? Um, I haven't seen it since moving to LA. So it's probably, it's been over eight years, but I'd say maybe 10 years. Okay. Um, do you have a good memory for it at all? Decent. Cause I think I've seen it more than once also. Okay. Um, so yeah, most of my, most of my memories consist of Rex Harrison talk singing his way through it. Sure. Um, yeah. But doing a good job of that, by the way, I should say, um, cause I was looking up some stuff about it and that he did not like the idea of mouthing the words and someone else would sing, uh, or even he yeah. would sing afterwards. Like his stuff is done at filming in the moment. Yeah. Um, it just, he felt like it was just something that would help him as an actor. Yeah. Which was not the case for, uh, no, Audrey somebody Hepburn else, somebody else singing. did her singing. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so do you like the movie for the most part or, um, I, I, I feel like I don't have a strong feeling about it one, one way or the other. I know I like some of the songs. Mm-hmm. Um, it's funny. Last time we talked about sound of music and how it feels very cinematic and yeah. this one to me seems more stagey. It Definitely. feels like it's on sets. It doesn't feel like, eh, well, I was about to say like part of it's maybe cause it's, it's a period piece, but so is sound of music yeah. and granted sound of music was only shooting for something that was 20 years old at that point. Uh, maybe more like 30. Yeah. But, uh, um, but I don't know th- this, this feels like they're making a period piece, you know, like they're putting on a show. Yeah. That makes sense. This one definitely feels of a piece with, uh, Oliver. Definitely. To me. Um, because they're both, they both probably take place around the same time. time, And it's very much this idea of like, okay, well we're going to show merry old England. So let's just pack the frame (laughs) with as much stuff as we can. And if we're in like a slummy part, then it's going to be packed with people. If we're in, uh, an, an upscale part, we're going to pack it with things. Uh, if we're in Henry Higgins house, then it's just going to be all these, all this bric-a-brac around to show that he's rich. Like, and like, aren't they in his mother's house several times? And like, uh, I don't know if I'd say several times, uh, but the, and, and now that I think about it, yeah, uh, yes. And I can picture the mother's house just yes. packed to the gills with production design. Yeah. And I think that's, I think that's the thing is that, um, that's why it feels stagey to me. Maybe is that first off, nothing, very few things, even the things that take place outside feel like they're on a soundstage and they probably yeah. are. Um, yeah. All, all the market stuff really yeah. looks like it's in a soundstage and there's nothing inherently wrong with that. There's no, still a way to work. shoot it in such a way that it seems cinematic, yeah. but because I think a lot much. of, uh, I mean, we'll get to, uh, West side story later, but I think yeah. that's all on sound stages too. Yeah. But that's, you know, the amazing, the apparently amazing Robert wise. Mm-hmm. Um, and I have nothing against, uh, George, uh, Cukor who, has made other films that I have seen and now I can't think of I, what they I are. I looked him up. He actually made a lot that I like. Um, Gaslight was one of them, which okay. I like a lot. Uh, he, he did a, worked a lot with Tracy and Hepburn. Like he did oh, okay. Adam's rib and Pat and Mike among other okay. things. Um, um, yeah. So this, this definitely feels, as I said, of a piece with Oliver, that type of musical, where it's not even really trying to hide its stage roots. If anything, it's trying to bring the stage mm-hmm. t- production 
to the screen. Mm. I buried the lead here. He did Philadelphia story. Oh, okay. Well, I love that. And is, is, that is based on a play and is credited as co-directing the wizard of Oz. Oh, I don't think I knew that. All right. Yeah. So yeah, let's just say he does. All right. (laughs) Um, but he's also clearly very comfortable shooting on a soundstage. Yeah. Um, you know, even something like the wizard of Oz, which is supposed to be like a whole other world, it's it's all on a still on stage. stage, yeah. So, um, of course, that was 1939 too, right? But but so was Gone with the Wind. Yeah, you know. Um, so, and and I don't mean to be uh, overly critical. Like this is clearly he had different goals mm-hmm. with My Fair Lady than Robert Wise did with The Sound of Music, and that is okay um, because My Fair Lady is not an. It might be at an epic length, but the story is not inherently epic. Mm-hmm. So it's okay that it's smaller. Yeah. Um, but it is, to me, less inherently cinematic. Uh, I will say, the th- so the things that I, it's hard for me to talk about the things that I like without talking about the things that I don't like, but I'm not sure if I should like, or uh, it's, I'll just start by saying that uh, I really enjoyed Rex Harrison mm. in the film. I think he does a great job of crafting a character that is a real jerk. I thought he was going to be like a lovable curmudgeon, but he is genuinely callous. <laughs> yeah. And it kind of astonishes me that, that because everything that I had heard about my fair lady is that he's just like, he goes, Oh, he's kind of strict at times, but he's kind of a he's lovable tough, guy. But he's got a heart of gold. Exactly. Underneath at all. No, no, he's kind of, he has jerk. no heart at all. It, and he grows one over the course of the film and, and that's fine. And I feel like I maybe have a little bit of a problem with, the way his character ends the film. Yes. Because of that. I think as an actor, I think he does a good job of yes. showing, uh, of, of trying to get us there, but from a story standpoint, like, oh my gosh, we're there. Yeah. Like you started to suggest it, not from an acting standpoint, from a right. storytelling standpoint, like, like, oh, you started to tell us this, but we're here now. Oh, and then now the movie's over. The movie feels like it ends abruptly. I remember yeah. feeling that way. And it's like, <laughs> Um, I'm sure uh, if they haven't been already, I'm sure mounds of feminist theory could be written about this one. Sure. uh, But like the way he ends in sort of a like, she's coming to me on my terms a little bit. Yeah. I I feel like I I have a problem with that a little bit. Yeah. And that's a story thing. Obviously it's not an acting thing at all for him. Like he's, he's doing exactly what he should be, but there's a, there's a little bit of a sense of, well, now I can get what I want and I don't really have to change that much. Yeah. And one could say that the sheer admission that he wants somebody else in his life is in itself is, is a progress. Change. Right. But, but at the same time, yeah. Still. Um, but I do like his Rex Harrison's commitment to being what this character is, as opposed to like winking at us being like, I'm not such a bad guy. Yeah. I feel like it'd be very easy to play the character that way mm-hmm. as almost like Mr. Wilson from Dennis, the Menace <laughs> or something like that. So here's where, here's where I have a problem is with Eliza Doolittle. And I don't necessarily blame Audrey Hepburn. So, you know, she definitely has an arc. She changes over the course of the yeah. film and, uh, she becomes kind of a, a tragic, sad figure uh, when she's just like, when we realize the extent of uh, Higgins' uh, callousness to mm-hmm. her, um, and it becomes a very sad thing. But early on, I hate her. She annoys <laughs> me tremendously, like and just 
and just like the way that she just and maybe this is a function of of Audrey Hepburn's performance, but it's more just like the the way that they have her react to even just like taking a bath and just, she's like screaming the whole time and I'm, and I'm just like it's a bath you imbecile it's fine they go you think they go over the top too much with the whole lower class cockney person I think so and I'll get mm. to that in a moment as well because I think you've got I think if you got if you want to talk about feminism and sexism I think we can bring <laughs> a lot of elitism and classism in there yeah, as well yeah no totally um but so maybe it's her performance. Maybe it's just the way that they, they wanted to heighten her type of character, but whatever it is, it's just like, I am on Henry, I'm on Henry Higgins side <laughs> longer than I probably should be because it's just like, well, this woman's a monster and I hate her and I don't like spending time with her. I want her to change. I want her to be better. I want her to stop being everything that she is. And I'm pretty sure I'm not supposed to think that way. And for somebody as inherently charming as Audrey Hepburn mm-hmm. to play that, yeah, is an achievement in and of itself, um, but not one that I think is uh, what they were going for. Or were they? Are we supposed to be on board with her changing? Is she supposed to be obnoxious to the point that we are that we we're excited for her to become more refined? I feel like we are. But are we supposed to be an, as aggressively annoyed by her as Probably I was? Probably not. Okay. But I don't know that your experience of that is necessarily a universal one. That's that's true. It's entirely possible that had I watched it at the time, because at that time, everybody's aware of Audrey Hepburn. Everybody's aware of how charming she is, how beautiful she is. And you would go and you that would buy her that would buy the character a yeah. lot of inherent likability. I'm trying I don't to, have that. I'm trying to think if there's someone comparable today that we could say like some actress who we all kind of like maybe like a like a, a Amy Adams. Yeah, maybe. Who's not who isn't who doesn't have like the the glamour and the and the class of an Audrey Hepburn, mm-hmm. but she's somebody who just plays very likable yeah. characters and even when she's playing characters that aren't super likable, it's not that she makes, it's not that she turns them likable, but that mm. she just still has enough on-screen charisma. You know, like when you watch her in The Master and you see that she's holding her own next to Philip Seymour Hoffman and Joaquin Phoenix and yeah. that she's and that she's able to be powerful alongside them. Mm. Like, that's the mark of a good actress, but also, you know, same as, as uh, American Hustle, but then in movies like Junebug, yeah. Um, and doubt yeah. where she plays much a much more meek character. Like there's just something about her on screen that I really respond to positively yeah. pretty much every time she's on screen. Um, but she's also not a she's, I guess, a movie star, but not to the extent that Audrey Hepburn is. Yeah. So, yeah, I'm having a hard time thinking of somebody like her, but I have a hard time with that in general. Yeah, well, I feel like that that sort of glamour thing isn't as much of a thing anymore. Yeah. Um, I almost feel like that more is the case with our musical stars oh, sure. right now. I feel like we approach them in sort of a glamorous way. Like you think of Beyonce being somebody glamorous. Sure. But obviously she would not be in a movie like this. I don't think. Well, she was in Dreamgirls. That's true. Uh, which I didn't see. But like, yeah, if she was in, if she was in Dreamgirls and playing a character that is, you know, annoying and, and classless super and that low sort of class thing. yeah uh it wouldn't we wouldn't simply see i look at the character as eliza doolittle 
mm-hmm. it's possible that people at the time were looking at it as Audrey Hepburn as, as Eliza Doolittle, yeah. you know, which is which is a notably different thing, yeah. and it probably bought her a lot more likability. And because she is so used to, we're so used to, or those audiences were so used to seeing her as this sort of glamorous type of person, then it may have even been kind of fun to see her as yeah. playing low yeah. class. Like, that was definitely out of character for her. Like, I can't think of another movie where she even plays, like, silly. No, I can't. I mean, Roman Holiday, uh, uh, Breakfast at Tiffany's, even in Wait Until Dark, she's still very refined. Yeah, it's, it certainly is not silly. Right, I'll yeah. Tell you, I'll tell you that. Um, yeah, so I think it might there might be a certain um, novelty to it. Yeah. That once, like, maybe once the novelty starts wearing off, is when she starts to change and become more the Audrey yeah. Hepburn we know. Yeah, and, so and then it, we're comfortable. It's like, <laughs> oh, whew. For about one minute there, I didn't like her, but thankfully, <laughs> here we are. Um, and so, and I, and I don't, I don't, I think that her Cockney accent is, you know, it's a little bit exaggerated, but not terribly so. I mm-hmm. think um, it's not uh, Dick Van Dyke in Mary Poppins. <laughs> That's true, uh, which came out the same year. Yeah. Uh, so, <laughs> so I think that is actually a big a big problem for me, and maybe, and so I guess that might be an issue of of whether or not the film is timeless. Mm-hmm. You know, if it requires us to be hyper aware and hyper familiar with its if with its lead in order to be on board with her, um, then the minute that goes away culturally, then I think maybe the film starts to diminish yeah. and I wind up wanting bad things for her. Yeah. And the fact that also with the film we can immediately sense some problems with or at least potential problems with sexism and, and elitism. Boy, oh boy. I feel like that also can can uh, chip away at it being timeless. Yeah, I mean, I watch the portrayal. Like That was a big thing for me, is I was watching it for probably the first hour of It's Almost Three, um, and I look at Eliza, I look at her father, um, and just their world, and then I look at how her reaction to Things like, for example, a bath, mm-hmm. like she's one of the lost boys from Peter Pan coming <laughs> home. Uh, I look at that and it definitely seems like, okay, well, we're definitely in the in the position of Henry Higgins. We know that a bath is not poisonous <laughs> or whatever, and it's not going to kill her. In fact, it'll actually be a much better thing for her. Uh, I feel like we're in his position to such an extent that we really look down on these characters and we see that her father is just, he might be charming, but he's not, he's not a positive force in her life, but uh, you know, he'll borrow money from time to time and then just abandon her again. Hmm. And that's viewed as just like, well, Hey, what are you going to do? They're lower class. That's the way it is. I think it's, I think there are definitely some assumptions made that uh, not, yeah, I guess that's I guess that's all I can all I can say is there are assumptions made. There's just cultural cultural assumptions made about like well, if you're lower class, obviously obviously you're going to want to be higher class, but you don't even if you don't know it that it's just better to be higher class. Mm. And only only about halfway through the movie and this is probably by design. Do we start to see that like, well, being higher class has not really helped Henry Higgins be a good person, mm-hmm. but he's definitely improving her. Right. You know? So I find myself emotionally torn by the film. And, and there's no, and this is, again, goes back to what, uh, what I was saying earlier about his arc not being real complete is that there's no, uh, 
there's very little compromise ever. It's never like yeah. he comes down to her level a little bit to be like, maybe being rich isn't so important. Maybe being high class and being respected by my peers yeah. is not as important as I think it is. Um, whereas it, for her, it's like, yeah, I need to stay in this world because this is better. It does. I will say that um, the entire film, including the ending, I feel like, hang on, is that true? Including the ending. All right, I'm just going to start talking. You go with me and All just right. see see what you think. Okay. Uh, she's always catching up to him. She's he's always leading the leading the way, and she's like a few steps behind, like a like a little kid trying to keep up with her father, yeah, or something like that. And I guess there at the end, that is when he is like, "Oh my gosh, I, I actually." want to be with her. He remembers so that's, that she almost makes the day begin. Yeah. It's, it seems like a big deal. Um, <laughs> and so it's, so in that moment, one could make the argument that he's catching up to her, except it's not like she's super aware that she's into him like romantically. Yeah. You know, it's, it's more that like, she's, she's upset that like, well, they don't have a, that she thought that they were having some kind of real relationship, romantic or otherwise, and then it's revealed that, oh, no, that's not the case. So she decides, oh, fine, well, I'm just going to leave then. And maybe it's that, oh, they actually are in love, but neither of them know it, and they both realize at the same time. But still, that's not an instance of him catching up to her. Like, at best, they both realize, at the end, they realize something at the same time, but yeah. That's the last three minutes of a three-hour movie. And even then, like, how how much of... Yeah, this may be... This may come from me not having seen it for a while, so you might need to correct me on this, okay. but I feel like more of what she seems to want is the high-class lifestyle than it is necessarily that she really connects to something with him. Like, even I Could Have Danced All Night is yeah. like, you're at a fancy ball and people are paying attention to you. Sure. Like, that's that's not something about him that makes her drawn to him. I'm sure it's a situation where the two are conflated and it's, and they're meant to be in our minds as well, Mm. that he is, he was her introduction into, he is the one that transformed her. So if she is here, it's because of him and thus she needs to just stick with him. Yeah. Um, as opposed, although there is this other suitor, yeah, that, that, that is, What's his name? Uh, I don't recall. Did I write it down? Yeah, Freddie. Yeah. Um, Freddie Ensford Hill, delightfully. Uh, <laughs> and that's a... And he's younger. You know, he's he's her age. He's enamored with her. And yet she doesn't wind up with him. It does yeah. seem like that's what should happen. What happens to him at the end? I forget. All I remember I is the street where you live. I remember he sings that song. I don't totally recall. Um, <laughs> and you've watched it within the last few yeah. days. Isn't that... That seems like Does he a, just kind of fade away? That's kind of what I get. Like I I that's one thing I remember about the film at the end feeling like there is a lot of stuff kind of unresolved and we like rush cuz we've got to get to an ending. Wouldn't it be more satisfying in every possible way if Higgins is cruel to her as he always is? Mm-hmm. She leaves in despair, sees Freddy like just kind of waiting in the wings and realizes, oh my gosh, I have somebody who accepted me the way I was yeah. from the start. And then I'm going to be with him. And then Higgins realizes, oh my gosh, what have I done? He'll be sorry. But he's alone. He'll be sorry, but his tears will be too late. Yeah, sure. All right. <laughs> Why do I remember so much of all these songs? I don't know. I don't know. I don't. 
Um, but uh, like there is your ending where she has learned something about herself and that, yes, she can be high class. She enjoys being high class, but it wasn't her high classness that caught Freddie's eye. Mm-hmm. And then Higgins realizing, oh, my gosh, she actually changed me a little bit, but it's too late. Mm-hmm. Because I didn't re- because I, I didn't realize it in time. Yes, there's a sadness there, but not really because everybody has learned something. Everybody has grown, mm-hmm. and he has got. And while he has grown, he's not going to get what he wants in this particular instance. Mm-hmm. Perhaps he can apply it towards something in the future, but in this instance, it's too late. Yeah. Um. I look at that. And I'm like, there's an ending. That's a good ending. That's yeah. a really, really positive ending to me. Um. But no, that is apparently not the ending that people wanted i don't know mm-hmm. and maybe that maybe that's the ending of pygmalion she uh, wouldn't get all those nice things i feel like the freddy character is not in pygmalion and i think it, it feels like i could be totally wrong about this so if anybody is a fan of both of these and can correct me on the message boards feel free um but uh i feel like when i feel like shortly after he quote unquote creates her mm-hmm. he falls in love with her very much so and then it's almost like sh- she puts a little distance hmm. to him um which i think that's a little more dramatically fulfilling sure like the, the fact that he looked down on her but then in in uh changing her for the better she like gives her the upper hand in the relationship right right i think that's something yeah, uh, you know, and the more we talk about it, I think the more frustrated I am by My Fair Lady. There's still good things about it, obviously, um, but, and I'm happy that I watched it, but, you know, it is it is unfortunate that I watched it within 36 hours of, wa- of re-watching The Sound of Music, yeah. which is, you know, has such a satisfying ending, and, mm-hmm. you know, it's based on a true story, but at the same time, you know, you can change true stories if you want. Yeah. Um, and just the character arcs, you know, we talk about, you know, when you look at Henry Higgins and compare him to Captain Von Trapp, they're not super dissimilar. Yeah. Uh, but one, the the arc is much more organic and much more yeah. fully realized. Yeah. And, and Maria other. has a lot more agency as a definitely. character oh, than, definitely. than Eliza Doolittle does, um, which makes her choices uh, more dramatically uh, there's more weight to them. Yeah. Um, Eliza is a reactor. Mm-hmm. I mean, she, d- she does go to Higgins initially mm-hmm. and says, this is what I want to do. Mm-hmm. Um, but after that, it's all him all the time. You know, it's weird. I can't stop thinking of comparisons to trading places. <laughs> sure. <laughs> Which is a weird comparison, but when you think about it, it's, uh, it's similar on a lot of levels. And then I start to wonder if maybe that film was somehow inspired by one of these stories. Oh, I wouldn't, I wouldn't doubt it. It's a, it's a very, you know, it could be, it's sort of like a Prince and Popper kind of thing. Like yeah. it's not an unusual story. Yeah. Rags to, there's the term rags to riches. Mm. Um, and while this is, you know, this is not like, Oh, uh, a twist of fate or anything like this. This is mm-hmm. somebody grooming you quite in some cases, quite literally to be a part of this world that you're not familiar with. Mm. Um, see now, now immediately I'm like, <laughs> I haven't seen trading places in a while. I got to see that. Um, so, so yeah, I, I'm happy that I saw it. I think I'm largely unfamiliar with Rex Harrison and I definitely want to 
familiarize myself more yeah, with him. And it's funny, the only other movies that I can think of him in, I think, are musicals. Although he's in a Preston Sturgis movie called Unfaithfully Yours that hmm. may not be a musical, but he's a musician in it. Hmm. That might be why I'm getting confused. But I, I, I used to watch the Dr. Doolittle film as a kid. Yeah. He's in that, um, in which he sings a love song to a seal. That's uh, that's a real thing that happens in that movie. Nice. Yeah. Uh, that's a, that is a weird movie. That's another one that once, when it ends, you're like, wait a minute, this is the ending? I remember even as a child being frustrated with that ending. <laughs> what is the most satisfying ending of a Dr. Doolittle movie? Of a Dr. Doolittle movie? Yeah. I don't know. See, that's the thing. There were several Dr. Doolittle books, and I think oh, okay. for that film, they just kind of grabbed a bunch of things and put it all together, and then sure. when it got to the end, they were like, I don't know, he flies home on a giant moth? Yeah, sure. That's the end. Oh, boy. Yeah. Uh, is Rex Harrison the music man? No, that's uh, Robert Preston? Robert Preston, that sounds right to me. I yeah. so. I've never seen the music man. Um, I know a lot of the mu- songs from it, mm. but... Uh, that's but, another one I was in in college. Who are you? I was the mayor. Ah. Yeah. Mayor doesn't have to sing. Yeah, okay. (laughs) (laughs) That's the part that I always went for. But then I will say this. I I am able to sing in a theater type way. I'm very limited within that. Mm. There's not a lot I I can do. I'm never going to get a lead because I can sing. But but I kept saying- You're never going to do Old Man River? (laughs) No, I don't think so. (laughs) Oh, it almost happened. I was about to do it. but no, um, and I would always tell my theater teachers, they're like, okay, well, this is what the musical is going to be. And I would always say, well, which character doesn't sing? And they say, Tyler, you can sing. <laughs> and I said, eh, I don't think so. I'd rather, I'd rather act. Mm-hmm. I had a very uh, contentious relationship to musicals when I was younger because it always bothered me as an actor that in a musical, if you can sing well, you get the lead. And meanwhile, there are emotional beats that you are unable to hit. Oh, yeah. Uh, and it just bothered me so much. Especially in college theater. You sure. Oh, well, I'm, I'm talking about high school theater at this uh, yeah. point where it's even even worse. Yeah. But yeah, I did. I did one. I did a musical after college, actually, where the director, uh, I think he had asked me to audition for it. And I was like, well, I don't sing. And he was like, can you carry a tune in a bucket? And I was like, uh, I mean, I guess. And he was like, yeah, sure. Try out for it. So. <sighs> carry a tune in a bucket that's what he said theater teachers man i have no use for them he, he wasn't even a teacher he was a just some guy he was off the street, uh, janitor <laughs> yeah i don't know who he was actually no he was uh um uh, seems ira david wood he did a lot of stuff in raleigh his daughter is evan rachel wood the actress uh, yeah. so he has a big theater in raleigh called uh it's just theater in the park i think mm. i did a few shows there now, was, where do they where do they do that? Uh, in the park. Oh, it's actually okay. in an alley. <laughs> it's the funny thing is the there's a building in the park, so it's still mm. inside. Oh, okay. But it's at the park. Got it. It's a little odd. Should but be they do, theater at the park. Yeah, maybe yeah. they do some good stuff there. If you're ever in Raleigh, North Carolina, you should check it out. And we are not being paid to say that. No, no, I'm just so. What you are, what I am to France, you are to Raleigh. <laughs> You know, we both love these places. City of Lights. <laughs> uh, you're talking about like camel lights, right? Yeah. Okay. Uh, so, okay. Other 1964 Best Picture nominees include Beckett, Dr. Strangelove, or How I Learned to Stop Worrying and Love the Bomb, 
Mary Poppins and Zorba the Greek. I have not seen Zorba the Greek. I have seen the others. I haven't. Uh, I haven't seen Beckett either, but I've seen the other two. I love Beckett. Um, it's got a couple we, of great performances. You got your Peter O'Toole and you got your Richard Burton. I feel like we might have talked about that on the show recently. Yes, partially because um, Peter O'Toole plays Henry the uh, Henry the Second, which he would go on to play again in The Lion and Winter. Oh, okay, yeah. Um, yeah, Beckett is uh, a marvelous, marvelous film um, about um, Thomas Beckett. Who, is he the one who was murdered? Yes. Uh, okay, yeah. He became the archbishop. Mm. And Henry... They were like old friends and like just kind of gadabouts and stuff like that. And when it came time for uh, the king to sort of suggest or uh, a new archbishop, he's like, I'll just put my buddy Thomas Beckett in there. And then the church is going to let me do whatever I want. Oh, yeah. And Beckett gets in there and immediately starts to it's it's actually a movie that might find its way to being a full episode of this. Oh, OK, um, he gets in there and immediately is like, oh, boy, I'm a the head of the church. In England, it would appear. Um, it's kind of a I mess guess, in here. I, I guess I got to change. And yeah. he starts to change and winds up doing exactly the opposite of what the king wants him to yeah. do, which is when, uh, you know, who will rid me of this meddlesome priest comes along mm. and it winds up being a very tragic thing. Yeah. Um, I think I've Great been, performances all around. I think I've been to the wherever place in England. There's like a church in England where he was murdered. Yeah. I think I was there. Yeah, I believe he was a. Uh, he was praying in a cathedral yeah. when somebody stabbed him. It's pretty in the back. dark. Yeah, it's pretty rough. <laughs> um, so yeah, I really love Beckett. If you listeners, if you haven't gotten a chance to see it, uh, I highly recommend it. Um, I've also seen Mary Poppins. Uh, that is a fun movie. I enjoyed a lot more than I thought I was going to. Mm. Um, I've not seen Zorba the Greek. I've heard it's very good. I haven't seen it either. Uh, but obviously, the best film of all of them, best film of this year, is Doctor Strange. Strange Love. Yeah. Um, that is the one that I think, uh, I mean, don't get me wrong. Mary Poppins has, uh, stood the test of time, but Dr. Strangelove is the film that I think has, you know, has influenced people to make movies, has influenced the way people look at movies. Yeah. It is, in my opinion, maybe the best comedy of all time. Mm. Not the most laugh out loud funny, but I think just the best made comedy with some of the most genuinely wonderful laughs. And it's funny, like from what we know about Stanley Kubrick for the rest of his career, the idea of him making a comedy is a little bit odd. It is, until you look at this comedy and yeah. you say, oh, no, I got it. Yeah, he knows what he's doing. Yeah. Um, and, and he surrounds Because if he's him. going to make a comedy, it will be about the end of the world. <laughs> of so, course. I'm sorry, you were saying. I was saying also he surrounds himself with... Uh, he both surrounds himself with people who really know what to do with comedy and he directs them well. Yeah. Um, specifically, uh, 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 George C. Scott and, and uh, Peter Sellers. Peter Sellers. Well, and it's interesting, like George C. Scott isn't even a big comedy guy. Right. But they not. managed to find, it's like, oh, I think we got this. Yes. Like he, he knew how to, he knew how to find the comedy beats and Kubrick knew how to like get him to really hit those and like this. <laughs> The big board, like that. Yeah. There's well, so many great... They'll see everybody, everything. They'll see the big board. And just chewing like eight <laughs> pieces of gum. Yeah. Um, and then uh, Sterling Hayden, uh, also yeah. not a comedy right, guy. Right, yeah. You know, our precious bodily fluids. <laughs> oh, love it. Uh, yeah, Dr. Strangelove, to me, of these five nominees, um, is... I'd put My Fair Lady fourth, and that's because I haven't seen Zorba the Greek. <laughs> um, but I like Mary Poppins more than My Fair Lady. I like... I like Beckett infinitely more and Dr. Strangelove leaves them all behind. Yeah. Um, yeah, so I think I'd agree with that. Now other 1964 releases, this was a pretty good year. I would say looking at these, mm -hmm. you get movies like band of outsiders, which some people enjoy. Um, 
real, real Frenchy people enjoy. Sure, yeah. <laughs> uh, Failsafe, which is the not funny Doctor Strange Love, directed by Sidney Lumet. Have you ever I, seen it? No, I haven't. It's seen It's really that. good. Yeah. Um, a Fistful of Dollars, Goldfinger. Um, Back to James Bond, there. which is a James Bond movie. The Gospel According to Saint Matthew, a Pasolini film. A Hard Day's Night, The Killers, The Last Man on Earth, which is a fun uh, Vincent Price movie. I don't know that one. It's uh, it was based on the story I Am Legend. Oh, it's the same with like Omega yeah. Man and all that stuff. Wow. Yeah. Um, Man, how many movies have been based on that? Whatever three. that story is, all with the different Omega titles. Man. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Only one with the actual title, and yeah. it came out in two thousand. The last one. <laughs> um, uh, Seven Days in May, which is John Frankenheimer political thriller, which is a great cast, and I highly recommend it. Haven't seen that one either. Um, you got your Burt Lancaster, you got your uh, Kirk Douglas, your Do Frederick like March. Lancaster. Um, yeah, it's a wonderful film. A Shot in the Dark. Okay. A Shot in the Dark is the Pink Panther movie that is not meant to be a Pink Panther movie. Yeah. It's based on a, on a play, on a farcical play that does not involve Inspector Clouseau. <laughs> so they're making, they're going to make a movie of it. And the Pink David Panther, Niven is like the lead in that. Isn't he? He's in the Pink Panther. George, George Sanders is a big guy. Oh, I'm getting him mixed up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Shot in the Dark. Uh, and I'm sure, and I've never read the play A Shot in the Dark. I'm going to assume that somewhere there's a bumbling cop in it, and the Pink Panther was so popular that they mm. thought, let's just have the bumbling cop be Inspector Clouseau. Maybe that's not the case. Maybe they just took the play and shoved <laughs> Clouseau in there. But you know what? It all works. And I think because it's a play on its own with, uh, a clear act structure, clear character motivations, and the and the mystery part of it uh, is so, th- and the farcical part of it is so thoroughly realized already that I think it's the best Pink Panther movie. Really, you know, even though officially there is no, it's not the Pink Panther diamond right. or anything like that. It's just, uh, I don't know. It's a, it's a really really well made film. Have you seen it? I've, it's, I've seen all the Pink Panther ones, I think, and I haven't seen that one for for years. I, I, they are something that would be interesting to revisit now because the silliness of them appealed to me a lot as a kid. Sure. Um, so I wonder if going back, I, I still like silly stuff, so I'm probably still going to like that aspect of it. But I wonder if I'll appreciate the, the like filmmaking of especially the two earlier ones a little bit more. Well, yeah. And when Peter Seller, Peter Sellers doing silly is different than, you know. Chris Farley doing silly. True, yeah. You know, it just he he can still class up the joint. And at the very least, you know, we were talking in the last Minnesota in this one about like, you know, French things. <laughs> and his interpretation <laughs> of a French accent is in itself uh, a treasure trove. So um so other movies that came out uh in sixty four, um Three Outlaw Samurai, The Umbrellas of uh, Cherbourg, uh Zulu, like notable movies that people still talk about. Um, and as I look through these, you know, some really great movies here, but I still think Dr. Strangelove yeah, wins it. Still beats takes them all. it. Um, I know a lot of people think Gospel According to St. Matthew, which I've never seen. I know a lot of people think that's marvelous. I haven't seen a lot of Pasolini, honestly. Um, but yeah, looking at this, yeah, I can't. And I and I'm sure that you know, and Bound of, Band of Outsiders certainly has its. I would say it's, Defenders, except everybody loves it but me. So yeah. it's definitely iconic as far as the French New Wave. Like I yeah. feel like that's one of the the most iconic ones of the French New Wave. Yeah. But as far as iconic goes, uh, nobody in Band of Outsiders is writing a bomb. <laughs> uh, you know. So uh, yeah. So I think Doctor Strangelove is is the deserving winner of Best Picture. And you know mm. what? I'll say this. Good for the Academy for even nominating it. What yeah. a strange movie. What an odd movie to even 
incorporate into the Oscars. Yeah. Much less nominated for picture, director, actor for Peter Sellers. Um, and, Especially and seeing like films. what had been, like the things that had been leading up yeah. to that. Um, it doesn't, it doesn't really fit. Although there is, there is a weirdness to Tom Jones that maybe, maybe sure this, this felt something kind of like that a little bit. I think this is a lot more refined than Tom Jones is. Yeah. Um, in more ways than one, I guess. But, uh, but yeah, it is, it is odd and it's in a way it's openly critical of American politicians. But here's the thing. Cause I did have that thought. Mm-hmm. It's like, well, maybe it's the Academy and Brit- you know, it's like, well, it's a current event, you know, mm-hmm. the cold war, like, you know, the Cuban missile crisis had just happened. Yeah. Uh, Kennedy was just killed. Although I think this was being made when he was killed. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's just like the cold war was on everybody's minds and the idea of like annihilation was on everybody's minds. And so it's like, Oh, uh, all right, well let's, let's em- there, let's embrace the, these questions and these these discussions being had and let's nominate a movie but you have failsafe there yeah, you have true. a movie that deals with the cold war nuclear annihilation you have that going on um but done seriously mm-hmm. again sydney limet film great cast it's a really really well-made film they could have gone with that and in many ways that would have made more sense but there's something about the fact that that they went with the comedy they went with the silly one mm-hmm. that in being silly actually probably has more to say about the cold war than the serious one. Maybe that's one of the things that comedy what is what makes comedy so great is you can make more of a point in a more overt way because you're trying to make people laugh than mm-hmm. when you're really trying to make people think man, <laughs> you know, cause that's how Sidney Lumet talked. <laughs> um, but yeah, so strange love is iconic. It was influential. It was very in the moment. Mm-hmm. Um, just a wonderful film all around. So uh, now the question: If somebody said, "Hey, Josh, I was thinking of watching My Fair Lady. What do you think? Should I watch it?" Uh, I don't know. Like, uh, it's hard to say because I'm in general not a huge musical person. Yeah. So if you're someone who loves musicals, I, it's probably a good one to see. If you like the stage production, then definitely you should see sure. the movie. Um, but, uh, I, I don't know. I, it's not one that I think of as essential viewing. Um, it's not one that I particularly love, although there are a lot of, like you said before, there are a lot of good moments in it and there's some good songs in it. Yeah. Um, and then there's a song that goes on for like six minutes of Eliza Doolittle's father with like 10 minutes left in the film talking about how he's going to going to be getting married and doesn't want to. When, when's he going to get married or? Oh, well, and, I, and that might there's be... There's two different ones, aren't there? Two different... Well, there's... Okay, so there's, he I'm has... Married in the Morning. That's the one. That's the one I'm talking about. Okay. He does have another song that does not have to do with him getting married. Um, and I wonder if if that's the song that actually originated the idea of get me to the church on time. Like the, mm-hmm. the that phrase. That's in the song, Because that's, yeah. that's a big part of that song. And I remember thinking like, this movie's old enough that maybe when someone says, I got to get to the church on time or get me to the church on time... I was like, I could see that maybe originating with this play mm-hmm. um, and, and this musical because it was a very popular movie. Yeah. Um, and so, uh, but yeah, like that's an example because you were talking about last time with Sound of Music that you were familiar enough with the musical to know like, oh, they cut that song, they cut that song, good call. Mm-hmm. This was a song that could have been cut, but mm-hmm. I, I genuinely feel like uh, the director wanted to keep everything in. 
Maybe. And maybe maybe they did cut out some songs, but to me, like, if you're making cuts because you want this thing to move better, you take out that second uh, Eliza Father song because it's horrible. The, sorry, the song is fine in a different movie or earlier in the film, mm. but this is towards the end of Act Three. Nobody's I mean, wondering. Crazy. I wonder what's going on with that father. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, this thing is screaming for like a fan edit, mm. uh, which basically is the same movie, but with that song removed. <laughs> um, so, uh, sorry, that was a, a, a tangent, but yeah, there are some good songs. There are some good sequences, good performances. Um, but I think I would probably say what you, what you said, which is if you're a fan of musicals, you'll probably like it. If you don't like musicals or you're indifferent to them, there's no real reason to see it. Yeah. I'm happy I saw it because it's the best picture that I didn't yeah. see. That's my big thing. Yeah. Um, but uh, but by and large, and and there are things that I like about it, Th- things I really like about it. But for the most part, yeah, it's fairly for me disposable. So all right, so we will leave it there. Now we're not going to be doing this next week, but the next best picture we will be talking about is from ni- the best picture of 1963. It is up there for you with The English Patient as far as the worst best pictures. Mm-hmm. Which film is this? It's called Tom Jones based on the Henry Fielding novel from like the 1700s or something. Sure. Um, it's been years since I've seen it, so I feel like I do need to watch it again. And I've never seen it, so we should watch it together. And it's going to be it's going to be a blast. All that I remember is Albert Finney and goofy sound effects in the 1700s. Hmm. I'm intrigued. I have seen the eating scene where he's like uh, sitting across a long table from this woman that he's attracted to. And then both, they're both eating very uh, vigorously. And I remember uh, Siskel and Ebert actually analyzing that scene Hmm. uh, many years later and talking about uh, the use of um, suggestion mm-hmm. that like that is actually a remarkably sexual scene, but they're not doing anything particularly sexual. Yeah. So keeping that in mind, I was like, okay, that's I'm interested. You've mm-hmm. intrigued me, Siskel and Ebert. Not enough to have seen the film by now, <laughs> but uh, but yeah. So it'll be interesting once you rewatch it. It'll be interesting to see uh, what you think. Yeah, I'm interested too to see how it goes over. Yeah, it's not unusual to love Tom Jones. <laughs> so, uh, anyway, we will leave it there. Thank you everybody for listening. Um, Josh, thanks for being here. You're welcome. And we'll get you next time. Bye. <laughs>